You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Today is Wednesday, July 1st. I'm Max Weathy. I'll be your host today. We're joined by Ash Bennington, who is going to step over to the other side of the table today and be the head of the Daily Briefing. But before I sit down with Ash, let's kick it over to Nick with today's top stories. Thanks, Max. Yesterday, I talked about how the payroll protection program was wrapping up. Last night, the Senate had voted to extend the program through August 8th so that the extra funds could be allocated to a business in need. This extension still needs to be approved by the House. I also briefly mentioned that the Fed's Main Street Lending Program, or MSLP, could serve as an alternative for smaller enterprises to borrow from should the PPP end. However, the MSLP, which became operational on June 15th and has $600 billion available for loans, has been met with tepid interest by both lenders and borrowers alike. The crux of the issue with the MSLP is that the smaller enterprises who need cash may not be approved for a loan, while enterprises who are more creditworthy could probably find better terms for loans elsewhere, as debt is incredibly cheap right now. Lenders are saying that the setup of the MSLP is overly complicated. According to them, drawing up loan documents can cost tens of thousands of dollars, and borrowers are overwhelmed by the administrative process. Initially, the minimum borrowing set by the Fed was $1 million. They've since reduced it twice and is now at $250,000, so as to attract smaller enterprises. Yesterday, during a congressional meeting, Congress pressed the Fed to further reduce its minimum borrowing, which Chairman Jay Powell replied that the Fed was open to this idea. Yet, Powell said it would create challenges and that these enterprises would be, quote, better dealt with through fiscal policy, end quote. At the moment, for an MSLP loan, borrowers won't have to pay interest during the first year and they won't need to pay principal for the first two years. For lenders, 95% of those loans will be bought by the Fed's Main Street facility, and the banks will be left with the remaining 5%, while also having the ability to collect 1% fees on the loans. However, because of the deferment of payments on principal for the first two years, borrowers would have to pay 70% of every loan at maturity. If the borrower could not make that payment, banks would either have to refinance those loans, assuming the credit risk, or be forced to have borrowers default. MSLP loans also cannot be used to pay down other debt that a business already is holding, and it would be equal or senior to other debts in the case of a bankruptcy. The lack of interest in the Fed's Main Street Lending Program is a stark contrast to the Payroll Protection Program, when the initial round of forgivable loans in April ran out in just two weeks. As it stands, the MSLP will only attract a very narrow set of borrowers, as well as lenders. Chairman Powell said yesterday that about 300 lenders had begun the process for registering for the program. There are 11,000 federally insured banks and credit unions who would be eligible to register. With coronavirus continually spiraling out of control and fiscal aid drying up, Main Street may not actually receive the help it'll need to make it out of this recession unscathed. And I'll send it back to you, Max. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads.
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Thanks for that, Nick. Well, Ash, thanks for joining me today. I know you've had quite the week with two hectic days of the crypto gathering. I'm sure it feels like uh, you're already at Friday, even though we're in the middle of the week. Yeah, it's been nonstop. I think this is the 12th time I've appeared on camera in three days. That's a new record for me. What is the total of all of the number of pieces of content that we did for the crypto gathering? I have no idea. No idea. I, I, from what I've, I've heard, it's around 30. And I'd like to let the audience know that I've been busy over on the you know, regular side of things, so I haven't seen any of the crypto gathering. And that's really the role I'm going to play in today's RV Daily Briefing is um, just as somebody who hasn't seen any of it and you who were instrumental in basically putting together all of it in walking viewers through what they missed if they haven't seen any of it, and as well dispelling some of the um, not really myths and rumors, but I, I saw comments on Real Vision saying that it was only available for pro members or plus members. Um, that's not true. The daily content is available to all Real Vision members for free. We're still working out the details of how exactly we're going to deliver that content after the fact if you weren't able to attend uh, in person. Um, so that is coming soon, but that content is going to be available to everybody. Uh, but there was so much of it. Um, I'd love to pick your brain on some of the things that you felt were the most exciting pieces of content from that conference. Yeah, you know, I, it's interesting. I was just looking over my calendar over the last two days and, and thinking about the panels that we did and the, the interviews that we uh, conducted. And uh, there really wasn't a bad one in a lot. It was really terrific, uh, terrific content, terrific guests and some really great conversation. Well, with that being said, is there anyone that was especially terrific? Well, you know, they're they're interestingly enough, what's just they're good in different ways. And I'll, I'll give you some of my thoughts. And for people who haven't yet uh, had a chance to see all the content, I think I have some some suggestions that can kind of guide them. We worked very hard to make sure that we uh, we did a really broad cross section, uh, different people, different topics and also different levels of uh, of kind of like depth uh, and intensity. So there's kind of something for everyone. We put together some one oh one pieces, uh, some people for people who really don't. Uh, have a lot of experience in it and just want to get like the 50,000 uh, foot level. If you know a little bit about crypto and you're looking to understand a bit more in detail about the case for why this technology is exciting and why you should pay attention, uh, I did a great panel uh, with uh, with Meltem Demirs. I, I say panel, frankly, I really just introduced her at the beginning uh, and did some Q&A at the end. Um, but Meltem really makes the 50,000 foot argument for why this is something uh, that has the potential to change the world. And if you're relatively new to the space, I think that's a great place to begin. I'm not exactly sure what it's called. I think it's uh, it's called, uh, well, it's in my calendar, is Meltem Presentation. Uh, I don't know what it's gonna, how it's gonna land on the final. Uh, but if, you, if you'd like to take a look at that, I think you're really gonna enjoy it, especially if you're relatively new to the space. Yeah, I will actually, I'll let the viewers know, I'll drop a comment in the video that has the link to the agenda, the exact link, so you can see everything that was available to you. Um, and, and we are still working out the details of how exactly we're going to deliver it, but um, it, it really was uh, an endless amount of content. Let's say, though, I'm somebody who is a crypto skeptic. Like, I'm, I'm not new to the space. I've heard the arguments. I'm just not buying it. Where would you send me if I'm somebody who is a Bitcoin hater? Uh, first of all, Max, the name of the panel that I was referring to with Meltem Demirs, where she presents uh, the case at the 50,000 foot level for why crypto matters is called Securing Financial with Meltem Demirs. That's what it's called in the agenda. Um, that's a great question. 
you know, I, I could give you two answers to that. The first is if you're skeptical about crypto, um, and one way to go about like getting a sense of it is just to sample in and take a dip through the content. I think what you'll find is they're really smart people um, who are talking about this, not just from a technological perspective, but also from a markets perspective. And when you look in uh, and see people who have significant experience uh, in the investing space, in the macro space, and you hear the level of enthusiasm and excitement that they have for this asset class, I think to a certain extent uh, that can dispel some of the skepticism. A more specific answer, uh, there's a panel that I did called Finding Edge in Crypto, uh, not perhaps the best named panel, uh, but it's basically about the future of DeFi, which is um, which is this distributed decentralized finance concept. It's a great panel. Uh, it again has actually Meltem Demirs in it, but also Mark Yusko, who many Real Vision uh, viewers will be familiar with already on the macro side, uh, and a gentleman named Alex Saunders, who's in the crypto space, uh, in the digital asset space. He uh, has a show in Australia, uh, where on a web sort of based show about the crypto space. Uh, and it's, it's a panel of just very sophisticated people talking about the transition from the traditional financial model that we have today into a decentralized model. And I think that really makes the argument in a very articulate way uh, for why this technology is here to stay. Okay, so if if looking at DeFi and how it could potentially replace the banking system is the best place to start for somebody who doesn't buy it, um, what about somebody who is you know already into the space? They probably have Bitcoin in their account. Maybe they have a crypto wallet already. They consider themselves to be literate, very literate in in crypto. Where would you send them as their first place that they should go to see what what we had to offer? Max, that's a great question. You know, I think there are a lot of panels that fall into that sort of category. But let me give you one answer, a, a panel that I especially enjoyed called What Traditional Investors Need to Know About Bitcoin. I think this is a place for sophisticated traditional investors who already have a very good understanding of the way the capital market space works uh, to understand about what the investment and trading opportunities uh, are on the digital asset space. It has three great guests, Chris Sullivan, Robert Breedlove, uh, and Will Peets. Uh, Chris has been on the platform before. He's uh, with a shop called Hyperion Decimus. If you've seen it, uh, that piece on Real Vision and you'll like it, it's a great place to go. Um, Will, Will, Will Peets uh, and uh, Robert Breedlove are every bit as sophisticated uh, as Chris and his partner Haim, who was on last time. So that would be a great place to go if you're really sophisticated in this space and are interested in understanding more about the trading opportunities, uh, which obviously many of our Real Vision subscribers are interested in. Well, Ash, you are not a stranger to crypto. You definitely don't fall into that first bucket of somebody who's a skeptic. You definitely don't fall into the bucket of somebody who is brand new to crypto. You, you I believe you worked at Coindesk. Yes. Yes, yeah, you sir. You worked at Coindesk for years. So you're somebody who is extremely familiar. You conduct crypto interviews for us on Real Vision all the time. What did you learn as somebody who is waist deep in the space every day? Yeah, that's a great question. Let me come at it from this angle. I thought one of the pieces that was just a great sort of sleeper hit uh, was a was a, a panel that I did with Sam McInvale of Coinbase uh, and Greg Tusar of Tagomi. Coinbase has just acquired Tagomi, and I think it's a really interesting sort of metaphor for some of the things that are happening in the crypto space right now. If you're not familiar with Tagomi, Tagomi is effectively what one might call a crypto prime brokerage platform. Uh, 
crypto prime brokerage was a phrase uh, that very few people in the space had heard prior to about, I don't know, say six months ago. Uh, the idea that prime brokerage services were actually needed in the crypto space and then rapidly became indispensable is something that's really come probably the last two or three months. There was a whole flurry uh, of this type of M&A activity that we saw in the crypto space uh, in May. Uh, and this is a really interesting panel uh, because Coinbase has just acquired Tagomi to pick up these services. And I think it's really interesting for a couple of reasons. It's interesting uh, in its own right in that the actual uh, merit of the material we discuss is really interesting for people who are in, into the space. But I think it's also interesting because it's kind of a coming of age story for an entire asset class. It kind of makes the case for the more sophisticated um, sort of services that institutional investors require uh, and and really need because if you're an institutional investor, these are things that you've been used to having already uh, in, for example, the traditional asset space, the equity space, uh, the fixed income space, co commodities, currencies. These are all things that you've been familiar with already. And if you were to go over uh, and want to invest in the cryptocurrency world, uh, say six months ago, you would think, what the heck, why are these tools missing? And so it's an interesting an interesting panel for that reason. What is a prime broker? Let's say you're one of our viewers who, who doesn't know what a prime broker, what is that? And what does it look like for, what does a crypto prime broker look like as opposed to a traditional prime broker? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so prime brokerage uh, is generally a phrase that's associated with the hedge fund space uh, in the traditional investing world. Prime brokers are generally large banks um, that provide uh, a whole series of services to hedge funds, uh, principal among them, uh, are, of course, lending uh, so that uh, hedge funds can take leverage on the positions uh, that they want to move into. Uh, and then a whole series of additional services uh, that are required for those hedge funds to do what they do. So what does it look like in a, in, in a crypto space? What are you, what size, types of services is a, is a prime brokerage for somebody who, who is trying to, to trade crypto, invest? Maybe they're maybe like a venture capital firm and, and they're investing in in a development company. What, what does that look like? Yeah, another great question, Max. You know, so we mentioned in the hedge fund space, uh, lending and leverage, probably the thing that prime brokers are most associated with. But there are also a series of other things that they do, and they are, are important in the crypto space uh, and for slightly different reasons. So, so one example uh, for trading, uh, it's best execution. This is important in the hedge fund space, and it's especially important here in the digital asset or cryptocurrency space. So best execution, uh, obviously, is being able uh, to buy at the lowest price uh, and sell at the highest. Now, in US equity markets, for example, we have something called NBBO, National Best Bid, Best Offer, that, ex that ensures that retail uh, and institutional clients get the best execution for their trades. In the crypto space, it's even more complicated because you can have these huge inter-exchange price deltas. Uh, so you could see uh, so a particular security uh, or a particular crypto listed on one exchange at a certain price, and then another, it could be three or 4% difference. So Prime brokerage platforms in the crypto space uh, are there to ensure, uh, in addition to providing leverage for positions, that those uh, institutional uh, managers get the best execution for their trades. Now, there are a series of other services that are relatively, uh, that are relatively, I don't want to say benign, but they're relatively less important because there's, well, they're well established on the hedge fund side, but they're very important on the cryptocurrency side. Clearing, 
custody services, making sure that key management is properly handled. Because as most people know, if you lose a private key for a cryptocurrency, it's just gone. You're never getting it back again. Uh, and that's obviously something that's incredibly important. One of the guests was talking about uh, custody services and said, you know, look, uh, funds can explain that they may be down five or 10% on a position, but the position disappeared because we didn't manage the private keys properly. That's not something that is acceptable. So it talks about those kinds of services and how they're going to be provided for institutional cryptocurrency investors. One other thing that I'd like to put in here uh, is API access. For those not on the tech side, API is an application programming interface. This is an interface or a standard uh, that basically describes the way computers uh, can access other computers. This is something that's very well established uh, on the traditional asset side. Uh, on the crypto space, uh, it is definitely still maturing uh, and it is a work in progress. So providing mature APIs through prime brokerage services, something that's incredibly important. You know, this sounds kind of like a, well, like a back office piece of functionality. It may not be the most exciting thing in the world, but this is something that's absolutely critical to taking the crypto or digital asset investment space into a level of stability that institutional investors can access and feel comfortable with. Well, a lot of the people who appeared in the conference were people who had been on Real Vision before, but not everybody had been on Real Vision. Was there anybody who was new to the platform who we know none of our subscribers had seen, at least here on Real Vision before, that kind of broke in as maybe one of the new stars that you think we're going to have to get back with and, and bring them on the, the regular platform? Yeah, you know, I found myself saying uh, to people, you, I wish we had more time. You're going to have to come back and discuss this more after just about every panel. I think Greg Tusar and uh, Sam McInvale uh, from Coinbase, now both at Coinbase during the acquisition, uh, I think are definitely in that category. Neither of them have been on the platform before, uh, but boy, am I looking forward to continuing the conversation with them. Okay. And so I'm going to take a, a different stance on this next question. As somebody who, like when I first discovered Bitcoin um, and crypto, I was in high school and somebody uh, came to me and said, have you, have you heard of this, this new thing, Bitcoin and this thing called the Silk Road? And uh, my, my dad asked me about Bitcoin and I was, I was a young kid. I was going through my Austrian economics phase and I got real excited about it. And I look back on what I could have bought Bitcoin for and I kick myself for not buying um, but I've gone through like different stages in my sort of belief in the asset space from thinking it's the thing that's going to make me rich to uh, to loving the, the rally up to 1700 to hating hating myself for, for missing it and and then for chasing it to somebody who like re I would say now I'm a skeptic. I, I am a, a skeptic of the whole space. I see every single piece of news that comes out about Bitcoin is good news. I've never seen a single person who is purported to be a Bitcoin bull come out and say, like, this is bad news for Bitcoin. This, this doesn't this is not a bullish thing. What do you think about the space as a place where once you're a bull, everything is good news for Bitcoin and the characterization of Bitcoin bulls as shills. What do you what do you what would you say to somebody who takes that stance? 
<laughs> well, first of all, Max, you just made me feel incredibly old by saying that you first heard of Bitcoin when you were in high school. Uh, I, I'm still emotionally digesting that. Uh, you know, look, it's a good question. There is a lot of, uh, you know, if I if I liked it at 20,000, I love it at eight. Uh, and look, that it's an asset class um, that people are really excited about and enthusiastic about, and there's a lot of energy around it. And I think that's that's not uh, that's not probably hard to predict. Why is that so? Well, because it's a it's a new and emergent technology which provides the potential potential uh, for for parabolic upside growth. We we don't know if we're going to get there, but there's a the hope that that will happen. Uh, number two, I think it's because the technology is so interesting. If you talk to people who come uh, at digital assets, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, from a technology perspective, there's a passion and intensity there uh, that is not related to the upside uh, potential of the assets themselves. People are just excited uh, on the computer science side about how cool it is to have a distributed network where there's no single entity in charge uh, and there's consensus that's generated among the network itself. So there's a lot of passion, I think, and intensity, not just uh, for Bitcoin, though it's especially true of Bitcoin, but across the cryptocurrency, digital asset, distributed ledger tech space on the technology side. Uh, so maybe some of that uh, is explained by that. The third point I would make is, look, there's definitely um, people come at Bitcoin, uh, people come at crypto, people come at digital assets from all places uh, in the political spectrum. I'm, I'm sure that there are, um, you know, representative examples of of every political party and ideology. But there's also a passion in the space uh, on the libertarian side of the spectrum. And I think that's kind of natural and it makes sense. You have people who are really interested in this technology because they see it as the potential to privatize uh, the money supply. There are people, you mentioned uh, Austrian economics. There are a lot of people in this space who have a real connection to the Austrian economic worldview. And they see this as incredibly exciting because there's a fixed supply of Bitcoin, 21 million uh, Bitcoin that can be minted uh, forever, and it can never be changed. It's actually in the protocol itself. I guess it could be changed if enough nodes on the network decided that they wanted that. But since that's a foundational precept of the asset itself, it's very unlikely to change. It's certainly not going to fluctuate uh, the way, for example, the M2 money stock does uh, here in the US. So I think for all of those reasons, there's a durable excitement uh, around the technology, uh, around the ideology, and around the potential uh, for great growth in the space. Okay. Well, there was actually, although I didn't, I, I really didn't get to see any of the conference. I was too busy over here keeping things afloat. It's been a, a rough week for us. You know, everybody knows Jack. Jack was out on vacation. Ed's been under the weather. You've been gone on the crypto channel, Raul, or on the crypto conference. Raul has been there as well. So one thing that I did hear was Raul made a comment that if if it isn't now, when is it going to be? Central banks are are stepping in with unprecedented monetary poli policy. MMT is at our doorstep. Um, if this isn't the catalyst for the parabolic rise in Bitcoin, what is? What do you think about this being kind of like the proving moment for the asset class? And that if it's not now, it's never. Well, you, you know, I actually have a couple of thoughts uh, around that. You know, Barry Silbert famously said, uh, you know, this is the moment that Bitcoin was invented for. And I think there's a lot of truth to that uh, for all of the reasons that you just named. But I would also point out, and I think this is an incredibly important 
point. It's still incredibly early in the space. And I've, I've mentioned these statistics before uh, a couple of times in some of the panels, but I think they're worth repeating again here. The total size, the total size of the digital asset cryptocurrency space is 260 some odd billion dollars in total network value or market capitalization in US dollars, right? The size of Bitcoin, the total asset class. Now, Bitcoin represents about 65%. I think it's 64.6% as we go into this recording of the total network value or market capitalization of the crypto space. So right now, Bitcoin is $170 billion. Now, obviously, $170 billion is a lot of money. But to put that into perspective, Apple, not the market cap, but cash on hand at Apple, $190 some odd billion in the general sweep of the world, this is a tiny, tiny, tiny asset class. And if you compare it to the notional value outstanding in the fixed income world, it's barely a speck of dust. So while I definitely agree with the sentiment that this is a powerful proving moment for this underlying technology, and it is a moment that seems in some senses sort of custom built to highlight some of the features uh, of the technology, we're still incredibly, incredibly early in the space. And while this gives it a little bit of a bump, while it brings people's attention to the asset class, let's not forget that this is a technology that's very new and relative to the traditional asset space is very small. Yeah, I was actually looking at uh, like U.S. banks today by just total assets. And there are, you know, it might be like Comerica, like regional banks that have more assets than, than what you're talking about. So that, that does put it in perspective. So um, I'm going to continue to play the sort of skeptics role here. It's one of the comments that I think we've gotten on Real Vision, which I, which I do think is fair, that we haven't done um, a good enough job of bringing on skeptics and bringing on the other side. So I'm going to step into that role a little bit here. What would you say about the sort of changing like bullish case? It feels like every single time like people are like, oh, it's going to be the perfect hedge against downturns. Well, it sold off like a risk asset in March. Um, it isn't, I wouldn't say people are closer to buying their groceries with Bitcoin. When I first got into to the space, you know, people were using it to buy uh, things on, on the Silk Road. You know, people were using it to, to buy things. And then as well, the argument was that it's untraceable. There was a sort of anarchist, like, utopia aspect of it. And, you know, the guy, Ross, you can say what you want about whether he is the the DP, you know, Dread Pirate Roberts or not, but he's in federal prison right now and they tracked him from these things. So um, a lot of the bullish arguments for Bitcoin continue to be, I wouldn't say disproven, but at least they're, they're certainly not proven. And, and the bullish case like always seems to shift. What would you say about like the shifting bull narrative of Bitcoin and that there always seems to be another bull case? Buying things. Yeah, buying things. That's, that's what we'll say. I'll say people, people I know were buying things. Friends, yes. Yeah. Uh, look, ship, shifting case, it's a shifting space. The, sh the, sh the, the sands are shifting everywhere. Let me zoom the camera out a little bit here to provide a little bit of context for the question. Uh, and then I'll come back to more specifically your points. So, so first of all, we've actually just sort of backed into a, a key question uh, or point of discussion, which is the view of whether or not you said, you know, the, the, and we're referring to Bitcoin itself. And it's interesting because there are two very different worldviews in the space. The first one is generally categorized uh, something called Bitcoin 
maximalism. The Bitcoin maximalist position effectively goes like this. Cryptocurrency is Bitcoin. Everything else is a distraction. Everything else, the term of art in this space is shitcoin. It's not something that people should pay attention to. The value here is in Bitcoin. Let's talk about that. That's the Bitcoin maximalist position. The so-called Bitcoin minimalist position, although I think that term probably evolved in opposition to Bitcoin maximalist and probably not what people who view that the world in that way would like to sort of frame their position as, is look, we're still incredibly early. Uh, you know, Bitcoin may in fact be Friendster uh, and the real technology that's going to sweep the world could be the, the metaphorical Facebook uh, to the, the Bitcoin Friendster. And there are going to be a lot of protocols. There are going to be a million flowers that are going to bloom in the space. And we're just not sure of what the final one is. My own position is probably somewhere in the middle. I think Bitcoin has a special place in the space today and will continue to have a special place in the space for years or decades to come. But I also think that there are new technologies new protocols, new ideas that are going to come up. The world did not stop with Bitcoin, uh, in my view, and I think it's going to continue to evolve and there are going to be a lot of things. Now, to get to, to some of your points, Bitcoin specifically is not an anonymous technology. Uh, it's pseudonymous, uh, meaning that users can uh, can use, uh, can use, uh, can basically, uh, to, certain, to a certain extent, uh, sort of mitigate the degree to which it's totally transparent to the world who is buying and selling what. Um, but for the for the case of uh, of uh, of the Silk Roads, it's very easy for for federal law enforcement to trace these wallets and figure out who owns what. Um, there are uh, new technologies uh, based on for one of one of the technologies uh, is called zk snarks, uh, which stands for zero knowledge proofs. Uh, and um, you know the, this technology is meant to truly be an anonymous technology for buying and selling. Now, some of the issues that are going to come from that, there may be bad people who want to do very bad things, uh, and whether or not we're going to be able to trace them is very much an open question. I'm sure it's something that law enforcement has spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, you know, again, it's a very complex issue. I don't know if that answers the question that you were asking. I'll let you do a follow-up if it wasn't. No, I see what you're saying is that it is a shifting space, and thus there's a reason that the case is changing all the time is because it is such a, an early space and that that's it's a feature of any space that's in its early stage. I don't think um, I think everybody looking at, at Facebook to, to borrow your metaphor um, before the, it was free. There were no ads on Facebook. The idea, how are they going to monetize? What are they going to monetize? Are they going to charge users? You know, what what would Facebook become? I don't think anybody predicted uh, when Facebook came out, that that's how the majority of Americans would get their news um, from Facebook and that there would be debates about whether uh, Facebook should be regulating what goes on on its platform because of its role as a, as a provider of information. So you know, businesses change all of the time and, and not that Bitcoin or crypto in general is a business, but it's a space made up of tons of different businesses and, and tons of different coins. So yeah, uh, yeah I, I get what you're trying to say there. You know, to extend the to extend the Facebook metaphor a little bit further, I've been on Facebook now for about ten years. I think of it as something that really took off around 2010. Uh, one of the one of the sort of questions that came up uh, was, where are we in the Bitcoin space right now, relative as a metaphor to other technologies? Uh, and we had a bunch of folks saying we're in like 1994. We're in the Netscape Navigator phase of this. We're very early in the revolution. Um, so that may be a metaphor for thinking about just how early it is and how much change may still be to come.
Well, Ash, in just a little bit, I'm going to want to change gears and get away from crypto. So I'm going to toss it back to you one more time and say if there's anything else that you want to talk about, whether it's about crypto in general or the crypto conference and how that went, um, this now is your chance. Yeah, you know, we did a piece. Uh, I did an interview with uh, with uh, with Chad Cascarilla, who's the CEO of a shop called Paxos. I think it's a really interesting piece because it takes this from a very different angle. And I think, and I think, is a good contrast to some of the questions that you were asking. So, 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 Paxos is best known as a, a quote unquote stable coin. That is a coin that has a fixed dollar value, and they also have a gold-based coin called Paxos Gold that effectively represents a digital claim on an asset uh, for an ounce of gold. But in addition to that, Paxos uh, is looking at ways that the blockchain technology that underlies Bitcoin can potentially revolutionize back office functions at banks. I've worked in a back office at a bank, uh, Credit Suisse, and this is an incredibly archaic process. I, I can remember walking into rooms and seeing, you know, physical bond certificates stacked up while people went through and sorted them. And this wasn't, you know, 40 years ago. This is relatively recently. There's a lot of inefficiency in the traditional um, sort of capital markets back office sort of range of functions that really need dramatically uh, to be updated and automated and brought into the to the 21st century. If you check out this interview with uh, Chad Cascarilla. He's an incredibly sharp guy. He's someone who talks like a very experienced senior capital markets um, sort of analyst, which he was. Uh, and so he provides, a, I think, an interesting counterpoint for the question about uh, is Bitcoin's value going to double in the next two years or is it going to take three? This is someone who's who's built a company that's that's thinking about what the underlying uses of the technology are and how they can be used to modernize the financial system. So an interesting counterpoint to some of the questions that we've been discussing here. Yeah, I haven't worked in the back office of a bank, but I have worked at an insurance company. Um, and I've seen a lot of what you're talking about in terms of just being years and years behind. Uh, it's it's pretty insane. And I imagine banking is maybe a few steps ahead of insurance, you know, it, it but it's, it's pretty terrible. Don't bet on it. Yeah. It's not well, a, uh, sorry, what was that? I just said it's not a glamorous place. Yeah. Well, um, Ash, we're happy to have you here and got you out of the back room at the bank. Um, but I do want to change gears a little bit and, and help viewers kind of maybe navigate real vision this week. It has been a, a different week with the crypto conference. You know, we are a small company and, and so sometimes things are a little different. Um, and today we did something different in that we didn't have a traditional pre-recorded piece on the essential tier. Instead, we made the plus tier piece available to all tiers. So today's interview uh, with Ed Harrison and Mark Ritchie was available to all tiers. So if you weren't aware of that or maybe you didn't click on it as an essential member because you, you weren't uh, aware um, that you were able to watch it, that piece is out and you can watch it as well. Just to give everybody a look forward, you know, Rao was extremely busy with, um, with, with the crypto conference, but he is coming back soon and, and Rao will be, uh, on the platform on Friday and on Monday. Um, we have another real vision live coming up tomorrow with myself and Nafal Sanala, which I'm very excited for. Uh, we had him on previously, and he was pretty constructive. Some of a lot of his calls that he made on on equities were um, were correct, 
and, and his outlook on, on the macro environment and what the market was going to be paying most attention to. Um, he has notably switched his position a little bit. He's cautious to outright bearish now. So that should be interesting to get somebody who has been spot on and just right now changing their views. Um, and then as well, you and Ed didn't ask me anything, which is coming out on Friday to replace the RV Daily Briefing with the observance of Independence Day on Friday. Can you give us a little bit of a preview of some of the questions that you guys got into from the audience? Yeah, you know, we just talked very broadly about this show uh, and about Real Vision, uh, and we answered some questions that people had and hopefully give people a little bit of insight into how we think about this and also uh, asked, I think, some questions about what we'd like to see more of in the future from the audience perspective. So it was, uh, I thought, an interesting show. Okay. Well, this has definitely been a different episode of the RV Daily Briefing. Um, please let us know what you think about it. Uh, I'm sure there are going to be some people who who miss their daily markets news, but uh, Ash, you were incredibly busy this week, and, and thank you for taking the time um, to to sit down with me today. Now that you've unlocked the door to the uh, crypto basement, I'm going to crawl back out to the surface, watch the Mark Ritchie piece, uh, and jump back into capital market land. Yeah, there's plenty out there today. I would say anybody who hasn't checked out the Fed minutes that came out, uh, definitely do that. That's the the most number one must read piece of the day. All right. And for Real Vision, I'm Max Wheatley. Thank you, Ash. Thanks, Max. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.